Hello, beautiful. You are listening to episode 93 of the Africana Woman podcast. Take note, this is part two. Chulu is my name. I am a writer, personal brand consultant, entrepreneur, and mentor. This show is the home of African women's stories. We share ideas, triumphs, challenges, and lessons from our perspective as women. Our library is a step to cementing our place in history. Her story, your story, is powerful. Thank you so much for tuning in and welcome to all the new listeners. Welcome back to my OG listeners. Guys, I love you. Now, click the subscribe button to make sure that you're always the first to know when a new episode drops and tell at least one girlfriend today about the Africana Woman podcast. Click that share button. Let's get people knowing about the podcast. We are six conversations away from the official 100th episode celebration. On Saturday, 24th September, Africana Women shall descend upon Kabwe for a live podcast recording. There is accommodation for the ladies coming from out of town. Think lights, cameras, action. <laughs> this is song from Sarafina at the oh I don't know it's a saying smile for the camera flesh <laughs> oh goodness okay so think lights cameras fashion interviews networking good food uh I cannot wait. So you can still grab your tickets. Just go to Africanawoman.com and find the event section. All right part two Today, we have a double play with my podcast sister, Mo Sibyl. Listen, we're podcasters. We love to talk. <laughs> is it a surprise that this is a double play? Now, I was debating whether to split up the conversation, but I think it makes sense. Everything about this conversation is so profound. It's called an interview, but really, I was just a witness to a beautiful soul pouring out her wisdom. And it is a great privilege that I could be present for this. Pull out your tissue. It's a tearjerker. <laughs> and I'm not going to say much more than that. Let's touch base afterwards. Here is Mo Sibyl. your support system and your family your beautiful Mm. family so Mm. when did you meet your husband was that in nigeria or in the states in nigeria yeah i mean all this you know how you watch korean dramas all the tropes you have in colleges yeah women in college straightforward from there yeah Yeah, and what is my he- shoe? There was a shoe. There was a shoe involved, so it, it's very cheesy. <laughs> if I talk about it, it sounds like you know a poorly scripted you know movie. But yeah, men in college. There was a missing shoe, and and the rest, as I say, is history. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! And you got married in Nigeria, or um, yes, yes. So I met him in twenty two thousand and four. Hmm. Actually, 2003, 2004. And then we started dating two years after then, 2006. We dated for about five years and then we got married in 2011. So got married in June and then moved here in August. So I was a student bride, as I, like I like to say. Wow. <laughs> so I moved straight for my PhD, yeah. So. <laughs> oh, wow. And then what yeah. was he doing? 
So he's a physician, right? Um, he will, we went, so I went to University of Lagos. We went, went on the medical campus. I was studying pharmacy. He was studying medicine. So when he came here, the plan was for him to write his board exams and start practicing. But that took a little bit of a while because, um, again, not, if you don't have a green card and was just starting out, um, he applied, got some interviews, but he didn't match. But, and then he went to do his master's in public health and then finally matched. He did his residency. Now he works as a hospitalist. So we both live in Oklahoma. He works, um, um, as a hospitalist here in, in one of the hospitals here. And I work in, you know, at the um, University of Oklahoma. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. So, so you got married yeah. in 2011. So that's like, yes. girl, please help me with the math. 11 years, 11 years. Don't yeah. worry. I can, yeah, 11 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. And, um, in those 11 years, what was your, I guess, what was your expectation? What was your, your biggest hope for marriage? Okay. Um, I don't want to get married. FYI, yeah, even as a child growing up, how girls talk about their biggest day being their wedding day when you feel those slum books and autographs. Now, I never pictured myself walking down the aisle doing the penguin dance with a white dress. That wasn't my dream. I had two dreams growing up. I wanted to adopt a child and I wanted to go to France, get my PhD, and then go to culinary school on the side. Those were my dreams. That's all right. I never wanted to get married. I know. How did you you get the culinary school? I like cooking and I wanted to learn more about, I mean, my cooking skills were, the way I didn't go to school, it was just inherent, you know, because I think being a pharmacist, you used to stick into like, you know, ingredients and, you know, formulations and chemicals and all that. And I think it just came naturally. Give me a recipe. I, I'll cook it. I will make you, you'll love it. But I wanted to learn more about the science, you know, behind cooking. I tried baking because mm-hmm. I sucked at baking. I still suck at baking, but cooking, you cannot beat me in there. And so when I met him, I just told him, yeah, I never want to get married. And, you know, and it, of course he, he started liking me and I could tell that. And, um, and he, the first time he asked me to go out with him, he said, I don't want to just date you. I want to marry you. And I remember just laughing in his face, like, marry, like, haven't you been hearing all the things I've been telling? Because we're friends, you know. Again, I was learning French then, and his sister lived in Paris then. And so he would bring books, and then I would, I, I was going, I was going to French school during the summer. And so I would come back and teach him what I learned. And so we had a friendship going. And then so when he, he asked me out and said he wanted to marry me. I was like, ah, no, like, I know for sure I'm not going to get married. But let me think about dating you. Because I, I used to tell him that I hated guys that you're friends with who now want to date you because it kind of messes up with the friendship. But he was a, a kind of different breed in the sense that um, his, he completes my craziness in a way. Like, he's, he's more stable emotionally, and I use that very carefully. And he's more grounded in himself. He's a very strong man, but he's also, t- he has a tenderness to him. He's very mindful. And, and I thought to myself, if I would do this whole married thing with somebody, it has to be with him, you know, and he comes from a very good family, like as, as well as I do. And, um, and we just got it going, but I'll tell you that being married was a totally different game. Cause I remember telling him then, let's just try for five years and see how it goes. Those are my exact words. You could tell that I had no idea what I was talking about. And he goes, don't worry, I'm not going to make you regret it. I'll make sure you have the best time of your life. And it's been 11 years. And I'll say he's done a fantastic job. I think one of the reasons we are still married is because of him. Because I've given up in my mind many times. Because I'm like, you know, like, okay, I'm tired. I want out, you know, time out, time out. He goes, where are you going? Come back here. you know. And he's done a lot of work. And I've had, I've had to learn to put in the work. 
I remember the first year of marriage, which was one of, one of the hardest. He would say things like, I chose to love you. Like, I'm choosing to love him. And I go like choosing to love. Oh, like a, like a dog you rescued from the pounds, right? Like you're just choosing. You have like, man, God, I was a hot mess, you know? So bless God for that, man. And friends that know us, they know that, you know, um, we kind of compliment each other. I'm the crazy one and he's like the cool one, but now things are changing. He's now more adventurous and I'm like retiring now that I have a daughter. Like I'm being more careful because I know I realize I only have one life. So I don't do crazy things as much as I used to before. But, um, I'll say what I really hoped was just to be happy and not necessarily happy. It was very important for me to have purpose. I just want to be a wife. That could not be my identity. And I'm someone that you cannot cage. I needed that freedom. Now, when I talk about freedom, not freedom and that flippancy to go do things you're not supposed to do. I wanted to explore my talents because I have a lot of gifts. And I thought to myself, marriage was going to tie you down. That was my fear. You know, because as a Nigerian, you're all even out African, which I think you can relate to. You have all these box ticks for you. The moment you came out of your mother's hoo-ha, you know, Go to school, but don't be too ambitious. Find a nice man who can, who can marry you. But before then, learn how to cook clean and have great sex. Even though you were not taught anything about sex, but all of a sudden you're supposed to unleash all of these, you know, unhidden talents. And so I'm like, I don't want the part of this. How about that? Let me just find my own path. And I remember always telling my mom, I'm not going to get married. I'm going to adopt a child. She, as a child, she would just look at me and say, I rebuke it for you in Jesus' name. Like she would pray, pray, pray over me. So I would say, I have my PhD. I haven't gone to cooking school yet, but I'm not taking that off. I have a child who I adopted, but it's, it's been a lot of work. We've had to put in a lot of work. I mean, marriage counseling, therapy, individual therapy, because you realize that you, your broken parts, even though things that happen to you as a child, you think it's happening to you, but your spouse can also take a brunt of that and knowing how to function as an individual because you're only as strong as, as you're strong individually. So I've had to be in therapy to work on myself and he's had to work on himself as well. But I knew that there were so many things I brought into the marriage that I, and I'm speaking for myself. I'm sure if he were here, he would speak about himself. I mean, he's not perfect by any, by any means, but it's about doing the work and that can be quite hard because you're sitting in front of somebody and telling them in, the hurt you had as a child and owning up to the things you've done and just how messy and complicated things can be, but it's been worth it. You know, um, year 10 was good. And then after year 10, we went through a crisis that, you know, it's just by the grace of God, we're still married, but I think it's just two people doing the work. And so 11 years, I'm thankful for my husband because he's never held me back. You don't really see him. You don't hear it because it's not really on social media. I'm the loudest one in the family, but he's my, he's like my number two child. That my mom is my number one. I'm, I'm sure the only reason she's my number one is because she gave birth to me and she was there first. But my husband comes as a very close second. Um, everything I do, he, he, I mean, he encourages it. And, and I think that's kind of rare, especially in, in our men, but I, I'm seeing a lot of that changing now. Even when I go like, you know, I don't want to, like, like, no, you can do it. You can do it. He supports me in everything I do. And I'm glad I have that kind of person. And I'm glad I married him because I'm doing more. There's more bang for my buck right now. You know how the Bible says two shall chase, one shouting, chase 1,002. I mean, he's, he's made me into a great woman. And I have that confidence, you know, in him knowing that, um, he supports my dreams and I'm so, so thankful for him. And even though he's not, he can't be in places that I am because just of the way his personality is wired, but he'll tell me, go, I'm behind you. I'm here solidly for you. And, and, and that I'm, 
it's actually way better than I expected. Way, way better. And I, and I didn't give him enough credit for it. So baby, if you ever listen to this, thank you so much. So yeah. Oh, Sorry, yeah. I can. I don't <laughs> rebuke you like your mother. You will not make. <laughs> so okay. So you wanted to adopt, but mm-hmm. did he have those dreams? Because you had those dreams when you were young. So so what I, so he. I, I mean, I was very clear before we started dating what I wanted, and I. So he's a twin. Um, my husband's twin, so they're number one, they're fraternal and they, they could not look anything, you know, alike. they look like brothers, but his twin is a crazier version of me. And that's saying something. So when he told his twin about me, his twin said, run away from that girl. She's crazy. And I still chuckled to today cause he was spot on, but you know how they say opposites are trying. I'm like, why you like run into a burning building? Like this one right here, she's a hot mess. And so he thought everything I told him was like a child's play. Like, oh yeah, she just had this, you know, tall dreams. She'll be fine. But I was really serious about the adoption. Like I made a vow to God I was going to adopt, but I really didn't know how it was going to be. I didn't know how it was going to come about, but I knew I wanted to do it. So when we got married, my plan was to, you know how you just say, you know, I'm going to take two years, but we're debating. It was like one year. I'm like, no, two years. Cause I'm going to be in grad school. I don't start popping babies. I can't take care of. And again, my mom was working while she gave birth to me. So she was not really around for like about the first eight years of my life. And that really impacted me a lot, you know, abandonment issues. I mean, we're good now, but my fear is work is just going to overtake my life. And I didn't want that, you know, as a parent. And so when he, when we did the whole thing, okay. So we finally came to one and a half. It was like meeting, meeting halfway. He wanted one year. I wanted two years. And then one year into the marriage, I started having some symptoms, which were, oh, before then, about about two years while I was in Chevron, while I was working there, I had to go through emergency surgery. I had an ovarian cyst. So the cyst had kind of touched around my right ovaries. I also found some dermocysts on my my left ovaries. Anyways, I had a C-section done, a laparotomy. They took out the cyst. And the warning was like, get married right away. And um, so you can start having kids because, you know, we saved your ovaries. Your ovaries are good, but you need to, cause they, they will come back. And you believe that this guy proposed to me not too long after. I'm like, heck no, I'm not going to marry because of my ovaries. Like how, like he was like, no, let's just go ahead. And I'm like, no, this is, we're not doing this. And my mom was like, why are you? I'm like, no. So I waited two years because I wanted it to be something I wanted to do. And as I, as at that time, I've just gone on dating, but because I knew I was coming to the U S and I'm like, are you coming with me or not? Because I, I ain't doing long distance relationship. That's not me. Out of sight, out of mind. That's a love Easter baby. So I think even getting married then was the motto of let's just do it because, you know, it's either now or never. So, um, of course, I knew that coming to the marriage, I had that ovarian cyst issue. I mean, even though it wasn't, I was physically okay up, up until that time. But anyways, the cyst had come back and this time around it had ruptured. So I started retaining fluid around my abdomen, my pelvic region. I had to go through laparoscopies. They drain the fluid, but you know, it's like a vacuum. It keeps filling back up. Every time you have your cycle and you shed your endometrius, endometrial layer, I mean, it was just always coming back. So I had several surgeries. And of course, conception is going to be quite difficult, almost going to take a miracle because you know, children, you mom, three things have to happen. There has to be a sperm strong enough to swim and there has to be an egg to meet with the sperm. And then your inner has to be lined up enough for it to be able to like, you know, host those 
egg and the, and the sperm, the embryo as well. So something was just not matching because, I mean, his sperm is fantastic. We did all the tests. My, I, I was ovulating like crazy, but then the, the oven as a well was, was not conducive enough because I kept, you know, having a lot of fluid, which was irritating the pregnancies. So went through IVF route and, um, I was 25 when I had my first IVF until it broke me. It broke me so much because this wasn't, this was a part of my life. I didn't think I didn't see coming right in a strange land with this sophisticated healthcare system. So impersonalized. And I'm like, I'm 25. And they look at you like, you're too young. You're too young. So the first time I did my stimulation, so IVF has two cycles, two portions of it. There's a stimulation and there's an implantation. Stimulation is when they take your eggs, they mix with your husband's sperm, and then they, they look it, put it in the, they, they incubate it for a while, culture, whatever, to see how it grows and if it's stronger. The first time I did my stimulation, I had 17 eggs. And by the time they, you know, looked at the ones that were the better grades, we came down with like, I think nine at the end of the day. And so the first cycle I was, because of guidelines, I was, I was less than 30. They implanted one. I didn't get, get pregnant. I remember when they called me, I was on the bus to go to school to do my TH, my TH, my teaching assistant job. And I was willing in the bus just to show you how American can be funny. There are people in the bus, but nobody came to me to say, and, and I was, it wasn't like a, like a silent cry i was wailing like you could hear unless you were deaf and and my husband wasn't home then he was in school you know he was in college station which was like two hours away so i was by myself no one to even give me a hug and no one to even really talk to and then the second time around and before that after that happened i went back to my doctor was like maybe it could be the fluids so i had to go to another surgery again um this time around a cancer specialist did the surgery because you know to remove all these scar tissues and drain everything and then i got pregnant with twins um this was 2014 and then at the seven week mark i had a miscarriage oh it was a saturday and i started spotting and usually I have a number, you paid the nurse. And I told her, hey, is this normal? She's like, yeah, like, you know, multiple pregnancies that can happen. But to rest, I was like, okay, sure. And I started having contractions. I'm like, this is not normal. You know how you, almost like you want to pee, but you're holding it. But this time around, your body's telling you, no, this has to go out. And you're closing your legs together. You're, you know, contracting your muscles. Like, no, you can, you have to stay. Man, chill. I couldn't hold it. I just went to the restroom and the amount of blood that came out of me, I, w- I thought I was going to pass out. Like, there's no way. Like, how is, where is this blood coming from? And I lost the pregnancy. It was a full evacuation. So by the time I went to the, it was a Saturday. I went on Monday and I mean, it wasn't an emergency. So I couldn't go to the ER. Again, it shows you just how the healthcare system here is. I had to wait until Monday and they did a scan. It was a full evacuation. Chill. And my mom, that was, I got my master's that year, right? My mom was already scheduled to come celebrate my master's and stay with us until we had the baby. I was a shell of myself. I mean, there was so much going on. I had my, if you, if you look through my master's picture, my face was puffy. I was really chubby because I just lost the pregnancy. My boobs were really huge. And I've never been quite depressed. Like I went to the depressed pits of hell. Cause I couldn't grieve about it. My mom came, I had a picture ultrasound, you know, scan that was done before we lost the pregnancy. It was in my room. She was like, take it down, take it down. Um, she just, you know how moms want to, they don't, they don't want to see you in pain. 
but it felt rushed. And I guess that was her protecting her daughter. Like, I don't want you to be sad, but I needed that time for myself because for, for May to December, I was like a zombie. I was doing everything I was supposed to do. I even got an internship in Boston to work for a biotech firm. I was doing all the things I'm supposed to do. I was moving great in my career, but I was a, I felt like a failure, like a biological failure. And it was December 31st up until the overnight, like New Year's Eve. Um, my friend came visiting and they wanted to go for like service overnight. And I told my husband, no, I just want to stay home. I needed to like battle this grief because I had engraved. And this was when, um, the Hobbit song came out, um, bid you goodbye. That song was healing for me because I listened to the lyrics and I started crying and I let out a cry. I've not been able to replicate that sound ever. And I hope never to. It sounded like a call of the world. Like when an animal loses their daughter, their child, like their offspring and that cry of pain, like it was animalistic. It was a groan. It was so loud. It was God around. And that was when I felt like the dam broke and I could really, and I cried. I was shaking visibly. And that's when I, it dawned on me, like, this is what grief is. And from 2014 to 2019, 2020, around December, because December was my due date. There's this, and Christmas is one of my favorite times of the year, but around December, there's this crony depression that would just come from nowhere. And it was because my body kept remembering, even when I didn't remember why I was sad. So I'm about to work on that. So we tried again in 2015, didn't get pregnant. So I told my husband, I'm done, like, I need a break. I was in grad school. IVF takes a lot for me, physical, mental, emotional. You're jabbing yourself with all the steroids and hormones. I was putting on a lot of weight. There was nothing to show for it. People just, oh, you're putting on weight. So I ate eating all the burgers in America. I was going through a lot, y'all. Like the weight I was putting was through the IVF and my metabolism just got jacked up. And I come from, I mean, my dad's side of the family, you know, they're not they're big people. So I already have that, you know, risk factor. And then with these IVF issues and all, I'm being in grad school and, you know, my husband trying to get a job. It was just so much going on. And um, and then you start looking at your friends who have kids on, you know, naturally and without any form of issues. And you're like, man, why me? And the fact that I didn't even want this initially and now that it's something I want, I'm not even getting it. And up until that time, I I was always a straight arrow. Like everything I did was excellent. And this is something I couldn't, it wasn't for a lack of trying, right? And meanwhile, between those times I was doing surgeries, surgeries, I've had maybe like more than 10 surgeries in total between 20, 2009 and 2020. And so um, we took a break and he was like, yeah, I think you should take a break. Because I wasn't just, I wasn't myself anymore. And sex became just like less time. It wasn't fun anymore. It was almost like, Oh, less timing, less timing. I mean, imagine you just having sex with your spouse because you want them to get you pregnant. I mean, where's the romance? Talk about taking out the romance out of the room, right? And then uh, we took a three-year break. We tried again in 2018. And then I got pregnant. And I was like, yay. And and I had a trip, a work trip to Ireland. And I had a, I slept in the afternoon because when I'm pregnant, I sleep a lot, which I don't normally do. I woke up in my hotel room and I saw blood on my white bed shirt and I'm like dang it not again so I called the nurse she was like just relax I'm like I know what's gonna happen I know what's gonna happen lo and behold somewhere in the septic tank in Ireland Dublin there's a fetus there that belongs to me because it just flushed out and so Ireland holds some very bad memories for me because I was just by myself again 
And me and my all this time we've been using the frozen embryos that we stored. And it came down to the very last one. So I, I met another specialist. They did some tests. My endometrial receptor assay, they wanted to find out was that I wasn't getting enough progesterone or was something wrong with my endom- Like my, my layers weren't thick enough. They did all the tests. I did like a mock cycle, which cost a lot of money. And then they implanted the last one. I, did, I didn't even get pregnant. So that was it. I'm like, you know what? I'm done. And all this while, all this IVF surgeries, IVF surgeries was putting a lot of toll on my, on my health. Um, physically, mentally, my weight, my mental health. And then all of the studies I was doing, the invasive natures of it was causing a decline in my air quality. And I didn't know that. And so for anyone listening to this, if you're in the beginning of your cycle and you still want to give birth and you're having surgeries around your ovaries, I highly recommend you. Doctors won't tell you this because they're not trained to do that, which is such an irony. There needs to be like a mental health count, a fertility counselor that goes with you every time you do all this exploration. Please consider freezing your eggs. Because the most amount of eggs you have is at birth, you know. So my three-year-old daughter right now has more eggs than she'll ever have in her lifetime. And the more you do all these surgeries and IVF, you're decreasing your air quality and even the reserve. So by the time I went to do my test again, it was like your egg levels are low. I'm like, geez, Louise, you don't pray tell. Why not? Why are they low again? Nobody told me that I could have just frozen more eggs. So, um IVF is like a no-go area for me right now. And it took a while to mourn that because I gave up. But I know for my husband, it was very important for him to have a child. And he's great with kids. His, I mean, kids naturally gravitate towards him. I don't, I couldn't care much about kids. When I say I couldn't, I, I like my kid. I love her to death. But I'm not like, oh, like babies, babies. That's just not me, you know. But I wanted to do that for him. Because I know he's, I mean, he's a great father and I've learned so much from him. And it was me just doing something for him, you know, and, and also deeply in our union. But I think just the failures on my end, because it's my failure, even though he, he would hate me saying this way, the factor is on me. I'm the cause of why we can have kids, you know, naturally. And when you see, when you see that you're in the way of somebody that you love, not fulfilling, fulfilling their, that part as a father, there's a way it kind of messes up with you and start seeing yourself as less than, and he would never want me to talk about myself this way, but it's just reality of what people like me go through. And I think being able to talk about it and express it has been one of the gifts therapy gave me, just acknowledging the messiness that it is. It's not from the lack of trying. So I've gotten a lot of unsolicited advice. Oh, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Have you? I'm like, honey, I have a physician husband. I'm highly educated. You think I haven't tried all those things, you know? And, um, so, um, when he came 2014, around 2014, I asked my husband about adoption and he looked at me like the look he, my husband is, is, is a gentleman. You hardly hear him raise his voice. He's very stable. Like, it's just like that. The look he gave me, you'd think I was asking him for a threesome with one of his sisters. Like, it was almost like, how dare you ask about adoption? And I'd never seen him that strongly opposed about anything. So I knew that, man, you know, as a wife, there's some way you can manipulate your husband to do things you want him to do. I knew this was not one of those things. I had to just let it go. Like, God, I know the dream you've given me, but you got to work on this guy because I'm not, this is not me. This is, I mean, look at the look he gave me. I could never forget it. And then fast forward, um, six years, um, five years later, he goes, let's try it. I'm like, try what? Out of the blue, true. 
before then, I never said a word about it. Never, never said a word about it. I said, try what he said. I'm like, did they switch you at work? Is this Taiwan, my husband? Like, what happened to you? It's like, no, like, let's just try it. And I, I didn't, of course, I didn't take him seriously. I ignored him. Two months later, let's fill this paper out. I'm like, no, like, what, what made you change your mind? So let's just do it. So we did it. Even when, so we became as excited as foster parents and went through this state, which is a DHS, the Department of Human Services. As a foster parent, your role really is, you know, Every child in the system and custody of the state is dead due to a myriad of reasons. It could be neglect, trauma, abuse, pick, take a pick. Foster parents, your job is to be a model parent, right? It's supposed to be temporary. While the bio, bio I, I will call them bio parents, even though um, it's biological parents, but for the sake of brevity, I'll call them bio parents. Bio parents, maybe they've done something they're not supposed to do. They've um, abused a child or there's drug use or there's neglect. So a foster parent is someone that shows the biological parents what, almost like you're mentoring the parents. You're providing a safe space for the kids to be in, um, to be able to have that sense of safety, depending when the parents get their acts together. Now, depending on the circumstances, so take, for example, if you had a, fam- a father or mother using drugs or there's domestic violence, the state will come up with some services, they call them. But think of them like rectifications for you to um, fix your acts and they give you a timeline. If you do X, Y, Z before this, you can get your child back or your children back, right? And so the child is placed in that foster parent's home and you assume the role of the mom, but, uh, uh, but it's in a protective way. It's not, it's not like your legal custody. I mean, your temporary custody you have the paperwork to show that this child has been placed in um, by the states usually through an agency or the states um usually it's the state but you know some agencies have they've been privatized for it but we went straight to the public the dhs state because it was easier access and um when you're doing foster catch foster parent training they ask you a lot of stuff you need letters of references, how you grew up, are you in therapy, your medications you're using, they come to your house to do a home study. It's serious stuff to do. And now because we lived in Texas, I lived in Boston, I lived in New Mexico before I came to Oklahoma. Every state I lived in, they have to do a criminal record, a background check. Um, they ask for our income, they ask for our parents' names, their numbers, their occupation, all of our siblings, who touched you as a kid, waited, everything. At the point I go like, we are helping you guys. Why are you asking us all this? I'm like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. That was like, no, we can't give up. Let's just stick it through. You have to go do a, um, um, finger testing. I mean, it was just chill. It took three months and then you had to go through, um, six weeks of intensive classes. The Holy Spirit just kept whispering to me, you cannot be proud about it. I want you to see this through. It was one of the hardest things to do because doing anything with the government is so hard to do. Anyways. They come for a home study. They look at your house, your rooms, um, your um, smoke alarm. You have an evacuation plan. We have a lake by my front of my house. Like our property sits on a lake. So, um, excuse me. Luckily, we have like a fence around. So we tell them it's going to be secured. Fire extinguisher. They tested the smoke alarm. What room? We have a, our room. We have an office in downstairs. So I had to get a baby gate so the, the child don't go. Anyways, all of that. Then we finally get approved. Now. What they try to do is they try to place the kids within as, as close as possible to where the parents are. So that way, if there's visitation, the parents don't have to drive like two hours to go see their children. Because even though the kids, the parents might have done something, but they're still allowed in most cases to still have visitation rights. It could be once a week. It could be twice a week, whatever the frequency is. 
is usually determined by the court. And then a case is built up around that. So when we started, every case we got, and I, I hate calling them cases, but that's just what it is, is a child involved. You have the paperwork. It lists you as the foster parent. It lists the child's name. It lists the caseworker, the judge. And so that paperwork is what I go with every time I have to travel out of country with a child or, you know, maybe go to do stuff. It's always on me, on me. Because, of course, their last name is different from my last name and my husband's last name. And so the first, and then as you're sitting down with the caseworker to the recruiting agency to talk about your preferences, they ask you, what kind of kids would you want? For us, we're open to any race, any gender. It didn't matter, any religious creed. But we're very careful. We didn't want somebody that was five and above. Because, again, as first-time parents, I wanted to, I didn't want to just jump and say I wanted a teenager. I have no idea how to deal with teens. So we wanted to build our way up. So we said five and under. But we could take trauma. Of course, every child in the system is traumatic. That's why they were part of, this, of their home in the first place. But we didn't want anyone that was, you know, um, had a lot of medical needs because both of my, my husband and I have like full-time jobs and I can't stay home and start giving medications or changing, you know, um, um, G-tubes and whatnot. So we're very specific that we didn't want maybe a child that had like, you know, um, serious health issues that would necessitate them being home or needing like, you know, wheelchair and all that. We were not equipped for that, unfortunately. So the first call we got was to show you just how unprepared I was, was like for a nine month old baby. And the case was like, do you have a crib? I'm like, no, they just sleep on the bed. Like, no, they didn't need a crib. I'm like, a crib? What is, okay. So I went, I got a crib. And then we got another call for a four year old boy. And he came home and he was a white boy. And of course I made Nigerian food. He wouldn't eat it. <laughs> and I live in a neighborhood where I just sent a, this was during COVID. I sent out a message in the Facebook group like, Hey, by the way, I'm a new foster mom and this boy isn't eating. What can I do? Oh, chulu, in the next one hour, the front of my house had like, it was like, you know how if somebody dies, they put flowers and all. It was food, toys, shoes. At the point, I'm like, guys, stop bringing stuff. I have more, like my garage right now is so full because I keep giving things away. My neighbors came out, they're like, try, you know, mac and cheese. Of course, right? I think about mac and cheese. I gave him mac and, mac and cheese, food of his people. He ate it with so much joy. And as you know, as a parent, four-year-old boys, they don't want to be disturbed. Just give them the food and give them toys and get out of their way. But I was freaking out, like, I hope he doesn't break a bone. But luckily for him, his auntie got custody of him, so he left. And this was for for like four days. After the fourth day, I was like, oh, let me make you make you laugh. The first night he stayed with us, my husband, then I was working from home because it was during COVID, but he being a doctor, he had to go to work. Um, he woke me up around seven. I'm like, I looked at it, I'm like, because he, he knows not to wake me up, you know, because I'm like, why are you waking up? I was like, yeah, go get, go get ready and have your bath. I'm like, are you okay? Why are you waking me up? I was like, we have a child now, remember? I'm like, oh, shoot, of course. <laughs> So I had to go shower while he watched him because I forgot to, I slept up. Just to show you just how unprepared I was. And then after the boy left, even though I stressed myself more than he stressed me, I told my husband, we're done. This is so hard. And he was like, what are you saying? You're ducky. So we got a call around 3 p.m. for a girl who was 11 months old. And I'm like, so they would, they would, they would, they would call you and say, Hey, do you have a, they look, they have a list to go through. And they're like, Oh yeah. Um, do you want to take her? I was like, ah, yeah, let me ask my husband. Cause I usually have to run through him, run things with him. I didn't know the day he would defer to me because it goes like, are you able to take care of this child? Because remember you had the one that would be home most of the time with them. 
So I actually forgot to call him. And then the caseworker called me back. I said, hey, we haven't heard back from you. Like, are you still able to help us? So I called him. I was like, yeah, sure. Do you want to? I said, yeah, I don't know. So I told the caseworker, if you don't find anybody, sure, you know, just come over. And around 11 p.m. too, they came in. I looked at this girl, looked her in the eye, big eyes, beautiful eyes. She started crying. In my mind, I was crying. I'm like, how am I going to keep you alive? Like, that's like the thought in my mind. And slowly, slowly, one day turned to one week to two weeks. And then you started seeing her shine through. Her smile just lit up the room. She had a naughty, like a naughty edge to her. And when she laughed, it was just like, it was this, you know, she gave everything to laugh. And you started learning more about her and her story. And it started going from there, going to court, hearing about the case, the parents, their plans, trying to work their plans. And I'm trying to be careful not to, you know, say too much because this would be her story to tell. And I want her to listen to the story and be proud of just how she's represented. So I can't really, you know, say a lot about the case. But that too taught me a lot about compassion for parents who dropped the ball, for parents who, because for me, it was like, you have a kid, you take care of them. You know, that African pride, like, why do I think of your kids? Like, you know, but still understanding that trauma can be intergenerational and parents can try their best, but they just can never, some, some might never be able to meet up that mark and having to write the case reports and advocate for her. Um, but for us, she was always family, even though she was a ward of the state up until when we were able to finally adopt her. She was always family. We involved her in everything. We took her to Nigeria with us. Took her to, she, I mean, by the time she was two, she'd been to like, what? Almost like 30 countries and states and cities combined. Like she was family. I mean, she wasn't a client because there was no way I wasn't going to make her family. It wasn't a job to me. This was a person and there's no way I would make a child feel like you're just a temporary placement. And I think even working through therapy, that really helped me because I wasn't comfortable with being called her mom, not because I didn't, I mean, I was mom, but as an African, I know blood is stronger than water and I didn't want to stop her mother's, you know, her birth mother who I wanted to keep honoring. And if the therapist was like, it's okay, you, they can be two truths. That's her mom. Yeah. Also mom, you know, being called mom was the hardest thing, but calling her my daughter wasn't as hard as me calling myself a mom. And I think it came from that whole trauma of trying to have kids, you know, naturally. And some, some of them might say, well, it's only natural for you to consider adoption when you've not had kids. You've had, you know, failures with having kids. And I want to just caution this. Adoption is not for everybody. Adoption exposed a lot of my trauma, my childhood trauma, my fertility trauma. It's almost like dousing somebody who's already on fire with more petrol. So don't think adoption is a cure for those of your friends who and start suggesting or forwarding this podcast to them. I, if anything, I caution you because it can break you, it can break your spouse, it can even break your marriage if you're not careful. And it took a lot of work, a lot of therapy, a lot of support, a lot of just, you know, digging through. And who wants to expose themselves in that way, you know? And as you can tell, my husband, my daughter looks nothing like us. I mean, she's phenotypically mixed. She doesn't look African like us, but she's very much a bit of my life and my husband's life. And, and by the time the opportunity came to adopt her, I, oh, I should say this, but when we did the fostering, my husband was like, we're only foster parents. We don't want to adopt. Never want to adopt. We just want to be foster parents. That's why he said. 
And so when the opportunity came, he was so much in love because she's a daddy's girl. Like, she says, die like this. Hey, my husband can't even throw all of his ATM. Like, she's, she knows just how to, like, get him to just smile. And they have such a bond. And I didn't have that growing up with my, as a child with my dad. So seeing them interact, at the point I'm like, ah, oh, dang, I wish you were my daddy's daddy. Like, and he would laugh and say, you're not serious. But, I mean, seeing just, and my parents did a good job, don't get me wrong. But it was a different time, a different generation. They raised kids differently. So I don't want to say, think of it like criticizing my parents. They did the best they could. And I'm so thankful for their help in my life. But seeing my, the way my husband parents my daughter, he's so patient with her. Like, take, for example, when she's like, screaming and she's not in a mood, I just walk away. Because I'm like, I ain't dealing with this nonsense. I just want to walk away because it's so much for me. My husband runs towards the chaos and just coops her up. And, you know, and I'm like, huh? Ah. I could do that. That could actually work. Again, okay, he says the kind of person he is because I was the trauma. He came running towards me to kind of save me in a way. So I'm learning just how to be patient with her and not lose my cool and ignore her, but learn how to just, because if you hug a child, I'm, and my daughter is so, she's so easily forgiving. Like you just hold her and just, you know, pet her. She's, she's good. And she forgives easily. You know, she doesn't hold the grudge, which I love about. And I hope Ari, you keep that trait because it's one of the things we love about you. You're so easy to love and you're always loving. And so when the time came to adults, my husband was the first to say yes. I'm like, what happened to you? I thought you said you wanted to just foster. And uh, as at that point, I knew my husband as um, a friend, a lover, a brother, an uncle, a nephew, a cousin, a son. But because of the challenges we had, I could never see him as a father. But seeing this, I'm like, man, when you think there's enough sexiness to a man, this is like another layer. And I'm thankful to be able to see it. And it's so humbling because this was something I felt like I could have deprived him of, you know, in a way. And he's so, he's so graceful about it. He's so level-headed. He's, he's a strong provider, but he's also gentle with her and he's very present. Even though he works crazy hours, by the time he's home, he's home, you know. And so learning to co-parent together and also use some of my own trauma through this. Because for a child in the system, remember they have their own trauma, but you don't want your own trauma to be colliding with yours because you are the adult here, right? And so having to expose all of my trauma out and start working on them. So I've been in therapy where, you know, I have like two therapists now, retainers, and I always laugh because of my daughter, because I'm trying to do the work because I don't want to. I know some things I can't shoot her from, but as long as I'm able to work on some things, I'm in therapy for that. So yeah, um, my life wasn't the way I wanted it to be, but it's a better script. Cause there's no way I could have scripted it. And every time I look at her, I look at her like, man, God really loves us. And that's how we named that Ari Felua. It means we've seen the love of God. And the Ari part is actually, there's a Korean bit to it, which means, you know, love as well, you know, God's love. So, and it complements the Yoruba speaking part of me, which is Nigerian. One of the languages speaking Nigerian, also my tribe, because she's beloved. Like you see her, you love her. I mean, God has to love, cause there's no way I could have auto suggested her to come into her. Of all the houses, because remember, I kept this caseworker on, on hold for like many hours. I even forgot about the call. She could have gone to another family and our story would have been different. But I'm thankful I said yes. This was the best yes I ever said in my life. Apart from saying yes to my husband, that is. Because she's brought so much joy. There's a way a child loves you. She loves your broken pieces. She looks at you like you're the best in the world. And I needed that. I didn't know how much I needed that healing until I started looking at her and then realizing that, man, to be called your mom, this is great. I mean, I've done great things in my life. You know, I've accomplished a lot of success in my professional life. But being a mom means a lot to me more than any other title I will ever have. Because it's a life you're impacting. And you, you, you're you part of that story. And so our lives are 
I mean, her story started in a, in a way we have, you know, first parents and like a relay, we took the baton and we're going to continue from here. And I know she's going to do great things. I'm just happy you started with us. Mm. So during the foster period, did she yeah. ever leave and then come back? No. So, the so she'll have visitations. Period, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like she's just been with you until you had the opportunity to yes. say Yes, and she was here for six hundred and eight six hundred and eighty eight days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean she'll go have visitations. We have um parents and then she'll come back, you know, because they allowed that. Mm-hmm. But she was yeah, she's always there. Oh, wow. The night she didn't spend at our house was maybe when she spent it with our friends when we're out of town, we couldn't take her with us. Because mm. of some trips that we couldn't take her with us. Like when we went on our, you know, um wedding anniversary trip to Jamaica, we wanted to just be both of us. Mm. Excuse me. She couldn't go with us, but most of the time she was always with us. Like I mean, mm. all of it, all, all, all about those few times when we we're out of town, like for trips. Yeah, every night. Yeah. Tell me about the first time she called you, mom. What did she call you? Mama. Mama. But she said she said die first. She said call it die. Said D A Y I E die. Oh, and I'm like you little Judas. I'm the one spending all this time at home with you. And then you open your mouth and cut, and Tyler would never let me get away with that. Like he's always reminding people like he's just, you know, girls now, those little, little, little betrayals. But she said, die first. And then she said, my, and then mama. Now she said, mama. And when she was a mama, 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 mama. And she's so cute. Like you're like, just take, take the keys to the kingdom. It's all yours, you know. But she said, die first. And then she said, my, I'm like, ah, what did she say? I was like, what? My? Of course, still had to say it again. She doesn't say it again. And she said it again. And then my husband heard it. Like, oh, but it was like maybe two weeks later or so after yeah. she said die. Uh, oh uh, yeah. But yeah, that, that like, I mean, it's just a word, like how many letters, <laughs> but it makes a world of a difference because before then people have been calling me, Oh, Ari's mom, the, the, the name, we had a nickname for her, beloved. And they say beloved mom, but I'm, it never registered to me because I'm like, well, she still has her first mom. Like, guys, let's be careful here. You know, I don't want to, I'm just a foster mom. Like, no, you're not just a foster mom. Because at 11 months, all she knew was us. You know, at at the point where all she, I mean, she remembers her first mom because I've gone to on one of the visits. I could see the way she engaged with her mom. You could tell that her body remembered. But up on from now to, to from then to now, where all she knows as parents, right? And so having to embrace all of that while acknowledging and honoring her first parents, because if they didn't make a choice to keep her alive at the time we got her, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. So I honor them for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I just want to know, you know, when you're going through that process of, I guess, um, you know, the opportunity to adopt, what were your emotions then? Oh. Because can things just change suddenly? You know what I mean? Can things just change? Of course. Mm. Of course. And I'm, and again, one of the big things I'm big on is communities. The way I formed community with you, by the way, which I thank you so much, by the way. You're part of my podcast's community, my African connection. And I love what you do. Love, love what you do. I have communities for different areas of my life. I've already, you know, um, I'll source them out. I have communities for fostering and adoption. And your story is true. People will have a chance for four years and then they have to go back to the other parents. Imagine four years. And this work is not easy. Again, it's not for the faint hearted. 
imagine pouring your and it's it's honorable work don't get me wrong but as humans you want there's an expectation you have and even when that thought's like and, and we wasn't us even dreaming about it the caseworkers approached us like it's possible it's going to go towards termination, termination of the parental rights. Would you guys be open to adopting her out? Otherwise, she has to go back in the system and have another, you know, family, you know, take her in. And I'm like, uh, I don't think I want this girl going back in the system anymore. If her parents are not able to get her back, of course it has to be us, right? But when he told us that and when it finally happened was, I want to say, eh, a year and something, a year, like one and a half years. And this is short, by the way, because these things can prolong for as long as seven years. Because when you go to court, the judge just says, oh, adjourn six months later. And I'm like, we just met for like 10 minutes as adjourning for six months. Like, what are you doing here? You know, but you have to be patient because for a parent losing their parental rights, it's not something easy to do. You can't rush it. Because it's not about you as a foster parent. It's about the child and what's best for the child. And it has to be done very thoughtfully. And sometimes do I think the court gets it right? Yes. But sometimes they don't do a good job because they take those kids back to those environments that are not safe. And for me, I'm prone to anxiety because I have perfectionist tendencies when things don't go that way. And my anxiety was so off the roof because of the time that because we kept praying for her first parents. Like we pray, we'll pray for her, pray for, you know, the dad as well. But I won't lie to you. There was a part of me that was praying that I hope you drop the ball. So I had to speak to God about that part. Like I need to be able to pray for her and just pray that, you know, she, she gets her act together, whatever that might mean. And it's okay for me to feel like I want to keep her because me wanting to keep her will mean she has to drop the ball. So having to like understand those two truths, you know, like I was wishing her evil. We were actually really praying that she, you know, turns a good leaf and all of that kind of stuff. But, ah, man, there was a time that my anxiety was just as high. And my daughter could feel it. She could, you know how they say children can feel it? Because she was just, like, exceptionally clingy to me. Like, she was just going to give me a hug. And I'm like, is this girl read? And my therapist was like, yes, they can read your vibe when you're off. So yes, a lot can go off and we, there are many times we thought we're going to lose her. And I use that word carefully, you know, and, but when that time came and I remember when the rights were terminated, I cried, Jewel. I cried for the parents because as an African, you know how blood is everything. This is somebody's mom. She gave birth to this child. They're telling me that a, a judge can just pronounce some words and it's, it's, it's all done and not and void. Really? But she gave birth to this child. Like, how dare they? You know, I, I had that, like, you know, tigers come out in me. And I think the part that broke me was when they would read the right and say, are you sure you know what this means? You cannot inherit anything through her. That inherits just I almost like, wow, like, this is for real. Like, they cut ties like that. Like, really? So I got to a point where, and this was God really helping me. There's something God, the Holy Spirit told me. Do you think you love this child more than I love her? And that was humbling because no matter how much parents love their kids, God loves them more. And, and I think I'm glad I started parenting through this way because it taught me how to be intentional. Most people didn't know even had a child because we couldn't talk about her publicly. So we had to be very intentional about her 
We couldn't just talk about her story anyhow. I couldn't put her pictures on Facebook, on social media. It kept, it was like a beautiful thing that was only known to people around us. And that, we needed that, you know. Imagine if parenting was done that way, where it was only the community that mattered. You didn't have to involve social media and all that. It's why even to today, you probably won't see a lot of all my, my social media pages because I want to protect that. You know, I'm not saying people that put their kids on Facebook are doing the wrong way, but, but for me, it had to teach me how to be more intentional. And also that concept of our children don't belong to us. Man, the government let me know that every time I went to court, because if you think, ah, you have arrived, no, they remind you this child is not yours. And on a deeper level, even when you birth a child, they are not yours. They don't belong to you. You're only custodians of them. And fostering taught me that because there was no way I could have gotten to know that on my own naturally because I'm very possessive. I occupy land and mass. That's who I am. I go into a room, I own it. That's the most touch. Everything I touch is just, it reeks of more, but not this child, you know. And I still see myself as a custodian, even though we are, it's, it's legal now. But I thank God every day. If I ever doubt God's love for my life, I look at her and I'm like, there's no way. She's a constant reminder of that. And now that she's growing, she's talking. Her personality is shining through. She has a love for people. Everywhere she goes, even in her daycare, she's, they talk about how she's taking care of the little ones. They love her daycare. We belong to a gym. She goes to, she's like a natural born leader. And I'm not taking credit for that, but I know there's no, there's God, there has to be a God somewhere because he is strategically picked her for us. And I say that carefully because I know that, you know, her parents, you know, lost their rights to her and all that. But I, I, I don't know what the future might be like, you know, and we, we leave that conversation open. She's always going to know the truth about where she came from. And the older she gets, the more she will know the truth. And there could be two truths. Your parents loved you, and I believe they did, and they still do. But they couldn't take care of you, and here's why. And that story will be open to her more and more as she goes she grows older. We're not going to hide anything from her. And thankfully for us, there's no way you can hide because she looks nothing like us. So... <laughs> So yeah, um, it's, it, it's a beautiful life too. It's, it, I mean, this is just, it has to be my life because sitting turns and the twists and the plots and the, the troves and the dramatic, you know, cliffhangers and all that. But I, I thank God every day I see her. Like she makes me, she's made my relationship with Jesus deep, especially exploring anxiety and my worries. And so have I arrived? No, I'm still working through therapy because parenting is a whole totally, totally different beast. I want to be very intentional. I want to make sure she's affirmed. I want to create a safe space for her. I want to make sure she, she's, she's, she knows that whatever she wants to do, she can achieve it. I want her to feel secure because adoption is a grief. Let's be very honest about it. Adoption is a grief. No matter how best environments we're giving her, there's a grief she has to contend when she grows older. Asking herself, why couldn't my parents keep me? And I hope, and I'm equipping myself, we're equipping ourselves to be able to deal with that question. I never want her to doubt her self-worth. I want her to be very open about asking those questions. Because for one, I have always struggled with um, my own, my self-worth. You know, um, I've struggled with, you know, just so many experts of my life, being abused as a child and also going through infertility issues. I doubt myself sometimes, like just how worthy I am. And I, and I know that even walking through that, by the time she's older, I will have more answers because I want this to be as open as possible. There's no, whatever your murky questions are, I refer, there's no questions I'm not able to navigate with you. I might not have all the answers, but I hope you can always ask them. So that's the kind of parent I want to be, um, to talk about things because our parents couldn't do that. 
for whatever reason, they couldn't do that. They, were, they did the best they could do because a lot of them came from a very impoverished background. So their number one key was to put a roof over our head and put food on the table. And I'm glad you did that because I'm able to do more than that now. I'm able to be more emotionally present. And it only gets better. I'm not going to be the best parent ever. I'll make mistakes. I'll say the wrong things. I'll do the wrong things. But my parents have done a lot. My 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 job is to do a little bit better than that. You have great questions, Chulu. Look at the way I'm just like the things I've said today. I have never quite pieced them together. Jeez, what did you do? Did you spray something on the mic? Other questions, but go. We we just gonna have to come we back. Should, we should we should we should come. Maybe do a live show or something. Come back because I there's so, so many things I'm not able to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah but like, yeah. so many other questions. But I'm like, girl, I need to wrap this up. Yes, okay. let's wrap it up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right. No, seriously, great question, Suluch. And I love your patience. You just let you let us just have it. It's a great question. You're a great host. Thank you so much. You guys, me I can talk to more for a long time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, let's do that. Let's do that. You know how to do like four-hour marathon shows. We can talk about everything. Seriously. Set it up for a Saturday. I'll be everything. there. So much. Oh my gosh. Okay, okay, great girl. question. Um, yeah. how do we support you? Where do people find you? Is there anything you want support in at the moment? Mm. Like what are you working on? Because you're always working on something. Is there like a <laughs> No. Um, yeah, so what are you doing? I haven't talked about all this yet because I'm still working on it. So for my birthday in October, I always try to do a cause. Because sometimes I raise money for um, education. Um, this year I want to raise money for women who might want to, um, um, like for their reproductive, for, that might be reproductively mm-hmm. challenged like mine, like me. Um, I try to do my own undergo surgery for like fibroids or freeze their eggs. So I'm setting up a board of trustee to, go through the applications and choose the worthy recipients. Um, ideally I want people that are 35 and over because I'm, I'm going to be 36 this year. So, because mm-hmm. I know that with older women, there's that desperation and people start chiming into your ears, you know, oh, your biological clock is sticking. I mean, I have my biological clock on the one end of the spectrum and my tenure clock. So it's like chiming all away like a Vecna piece, but I want to um, raise funds for that. So you can follow me on Instagram at M-O-S-I-B-Y-L. I also have that podcast, the More Simple Podcast, which I host with my wonderful co-host, Dr. Yomide, every Thursday. And we explore stories of Blacks, Asians, and those who love them. It's in its fifth season. We have um, almost 200 episodes. So you can catch up with the podcast or follow me on Instagram to kind of find out what I'm up to. But if you, at the very least, just listen to the podcast or even subscribe to it or share with your friends or, and, you know, support that cause. I'll be launching it soon to see how we can support um, women, especially in Africa, African countries where we have low resources. And I'm at a place where I have money to do great things. And when I was a student, I didn't have a lot of money. And if it hasn't worked for me, I would like to put a smile on someone's face, like, you know, be a blessing to someone. So, yeah. No. Mm. I love you. I love you love so you dearly. Thank you. You're amazing. Like, oh my goodness. We need more women like you in Africa. And I'm so glad to have met you. You're a great woman. You're very intentional. And I I know this is your podcast, but please allow me to, you know, give something back to you. You're very intentional. So Chulu, Chulu has Chulu's group on, on WhatsApp. Okay, number one, I don't like WhatsApp groups. I can count how many groups I am on WhatsApp, but Chulu's Africana group on WhatsApp, like, no, I cannot miss it. She has managed, guys to build an arsenal of strong Amazonian women across Africa doing great things. You know, we have Chulu there. We have the great um, Akego. We have um, Adele. We have people. I'm like, Chulu. Chulu. Chulu is the one ring that binds us all. And she's intentional. And this is something Chulu does. 
I don't know how she does. Maybe she has like our names on Google. Anything, something pops up. She knows what we're celebrating. I mean, how does truly even know all the people? She'll go and bring their post on Facebook or Twitter, wherever, and tag it on the group. Let's congratulate this person. I mean, truly is so intentional. She doesn't have to do all these things. So I know she's busy with her brand and, her, you know, her podcast and her retreats. But Chulu, Chulu, I mean, what you do is so great. And I don't know if you hear that a lot, but you're awesome. And please keep being who you are. Um, I know your heart is there because it's not a, a, fl- a, a, a flash in the pan. You're very intentional. And I've learned a lot of that from you, of, of just being very, you know, there for people and, and even getting us together, despite our busy schedules and not giving up. Thank you for what you do. Really, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. We're ending this podcast now. I'm not the longest guest you have on the show. Oh, you see, this is why. You might be on a good day because I'm like, I'm going to come from, this is Trudeau's podcast. Hey, she has to have the best of me. So I came ready. Right. Like, you know, I didn't think much uh, about it because I didn't want to overthink him. I'm just going to say, I didn't think I about the questions. Yeah. So and we didn't even have questions sent beforehand. So, but I'm glad to have him to have this conversation with you. But please, let's do that live show. I, I don't mind staying four hours and just talking about everything and, and nothing <laughs> with you. It'll be fun. It'll be a dream come true. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Aww. Thank you, my darling. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I held back my tears as we recorded this episode, but I cried. I cried when I was editing. First of all, Mo, thank you. You need to hear me say this to you. Thank you. You are a master storyteller. Thank you for painting a picture so vividly and vulnerably of your life experiences. Girl, you said so much that I will have to come back and revisit over and over again. You articulated the nuances and complexities of what it means to be a human in a way that is so relatable. I can see why you teach. (laughs) What a beautiful gift. Whilst the path has not always been easy for you, I believe that your story will be a blessing to so many women. Thank you, Mo. I love you so much. I'm not going to say much more because (laughs) she said it so beautifully. Um, We actually have a space where we discuss each episode in depth each week. So if you want to have a deeper conversation with fellow African women, Come on over and join the Africana Woman Visionaries. All you have to do is visit AfricanaWoman.com to become a member. I think it's great to hear these stories on the podcast and, you know, and you say, yeah, I can relate to that. But your healing journey goes even further when you can speak out loud about your thoughts, your impressions and emotions. So shout out to all the ladies in Africana Woman Visionaries. I love you guys so much. At Africana Woman, we give our guests their roses right now. Please find Mo on Instagram at Mo Sibyl. Tell her you heard her on the Africana Woman podcast. Take a screenshot of the episode and tag us. We want to keep the conversation going. The mission of Africana Woman has always been to tell more African women's stories. One of the ways that we are doing this is by helping you start your own podcast. If you have a burning idea 
and are interested in launching a podcast, but you don't know where to start, contact us at AfricanaWoman at gmail.com. Your story is so important. My playground is Instagram, so find me at Chulu by Design. Tag me, tell your friends about the Africana Woman podcast. And again, leave a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, because that helps us spread the word about this show to more African sisters out there. So talk to you soon. This has been a production of Africana Woman Media.